Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is AJ Lamarck. He is a software engineer uh, interested in urbit and data composability, uh, and he just went to the urbit uh, Summit on the volcano in El Salvador, and I'm sure we're going to speak about that probably going to speak about data composability and urbit. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. Glad, glad to be here. So what is a high-level understanding of data composability? Um, I think it's maybe been addressed better by other people over time, but just kind of multiple multiple applications sharing data and um, kind of how do you make those interfaces work? Because that's I think it's been kind of an idea that composability is something that people want, but um, it's just been a kind of a difficult thing to to get right. And you can see that it really hasn't been done at all yet. There was kind of a a little bit of a time where I guess Twitter and Facebook had some sort of open yeah. APIs that mm-hmm. uh, developers can build on top of. That was kind of before my time. I think that was late 2000s, early 2010s. But as that has been shut down to kind of prioritize um, I guess it's it's mostly uh, when data is like data is the main product that um, these applications have, so they want to protect it as much as possible. Versus, if you're looking at an, an open system like Urbit, um, that's kind of the benefit is you can separate out the the data from the code. So that kind of gets into ideas of personal AI and and more things on those lines. Mm. Um. It's interesting because now I just started this job at uh, Invisible and I'm the director of knowledge management. And one of the key problems right now is there's just every time you onboard somebody, there is a new email address that needs to be created. And if you want to add something else or if you want to f- have an email address that links to somewhere else so that you can have data be in that email address, you need another one. And then you've got all the Zoom and all the tools and all the everything. And then there's the fact of like, sensitive information getting to the right person without having the wrong person get sensitive information. Um, is that a little bit about what data composability is and how to like solve that? Yeah, I think there's there's kind of been a continued like accepted like accepted fragmenting of applications. So kind of like looking at what AI applications people think are going to be big in the future. Um even like one of the, some of the ones I've seen are there's an AI application that just kind of takes your team's calendars and resorts things so that there you don't have as much space between meetings. So these are kind of like things that are small enough to where they shouldn't be like, this is a full startup. We have, you know, developers specifically for this and deployment and all the all the kind of things that go with typical SaaS software and and kind of all the the struggles there. Um so kind of getting to the point where if you have users that are running their own servers or you have a system where kind of arbitrary applications can run without um, like dedicated resources specifically for that. Then I think a lot of these novel use cases can be unlocked. And even like you, I I might want to use that application that, you know, resorts my calendar, but am I going to sign up for my 101st email account and pay additional because they, you have to pay a lot of money to to support the startup and all the infrastructure that's specifically for the application versus here. Here's something I can write in a weekend, deploy, and anyone can use. Um, so there's and, kind of been a little bit of applications like that. There was, I guess, Dot just made a kind of blog application that just serves, serves blogs from your ship. Um, but I think kind of the current way that stuff is built, it's still pretty hard. It's kind of Hoon-centric, and I think... Um, kind of bringing, bringing that ability that, that Urbit can provide in the long term to the masses is what's going to kind of drive adoption there. 
and that's what you're working on with the the javascript you're because a lot of people i don't know if they got upset but it was sort of controversial that you were building something <laughs> in javascript on urbit is that related to that that you wanted to essentially create things outside of urbit but that were hosted on urbit that the legacy internet could be used for um yeah, I guess the kind of legacy versus not legacy internet is, is, is something that needs to be explored more because <laughs> the way that, that Urbit is set up currently, you still have to kind of run your own server and pay costs for that. So there's going to be, there's kind of a chicken and egg problem there that, you know, developers might like the affordances that Urbit provides, but if their users don't have, aren't like paying for accounts, either they have to provide those or, um, there's just some there's some complexities there versus maybe developing an application in a SaaS context is more difficult right now. But then on the other end of that, it's just here you have to sign up with an email account. And this is all pretty standard stuff versus um, telling a user you have to kind of find a way to set up an Urbit first. That's not I guess that's not gonna to work long term, but. And so is that what you're doing with JavaScript? Is that you're creating traditional. Um like sign up and login buttons using JavaScript that connect to Urbit? Um, I think there might be people doing that. I'm not currently working on that right now. I guess I'm working on what I've noticed from my short time kind of following Urbit is that most of the kind of like Gaul agents, which is Gaul is kind of like the, the standard backend that you use when building Urbit applications. And it's kind of, you, you define your API there and, just basic backend stuff there and kind of rules for moving data between different servers and accounts. Um, but kind of the, what you're looking for, for a backend is just here's somewhere to store my data and here's kind of the rules for, or you kind of want it to transfer between everyone that's subscribed to that data automatically. Um, so Urbit, like with Gaul agents provides the ability for someone to build this. And a lot of people have, but, Kind of the problem is you're kind of like reinventing the wheel for every application that is built on top of Urbit. Why is that? Um, because I guess the the way you have to store data is is strongly typed in Urbit. So you kind of you're forced to write your own specific JSON conversions to and from the ship and the and the um the user interface that you're you're working with. Um, so instead of kind of forcing developers to recreate, it's kind of like you're recreating a, a SQLite or just a normal database with schemas and everything, but you're actually rebuilding the infrastructure itself Every time. versus just using, yeah, versus just using the, the, um, so kind of, I guess maybe the promise of Urbit is that you're bringing like infrastructure up to the level of the application versus kind of on the old web, you have to rebuild authentication, rebuild networking. And on Urbit, those things are provided for you, but there's still some things that haven't really been provided yet as far as I want to store, I just want to store data and have it be synced across everyone that's interested in the data and kind of handle permissions for that for you automatically. And is um, that is that something that's happened because they haven't had time to actually go like the Urbit Foundation doesn't hasn't had time to actually go and build those structures in a way that's recomposable, or is it because of the nature of backends that people want sort of a more flexible way of storing data, probably because of business logic or something like that? Um, I guess yeah, it's mostly just a there hasn't been enough time and resources to be able to dedicate it towards it. So I know. Jack and some other people are working on kind of SQL support and parsing like Orhoon backends. And I think that'll kind of making this Urbit has the potential to be a general purpose data store that also handles authentication and networking. So just mm -hmm. kind of bundling multiple applications of multiple, like multiple different services that you would have to manage and deploy on your own in a SaaS context is kind of a one just kind of a one-click install, and I, I, my personally, my personal view is that um, Hoon Urbit's programming language is good for kind of creating that sort of infrastructure, but for kind of everyday developer applications, you want to just be able to 
not have to to get too into the weeds as far as like strong typing and um, difficulties with learning a new programming language is is one big thing that's is a is a tall ask for kind of developers entering the urban ecosystem so just kind of bringing the tools to where the the programmers are at and also making them kind of more usable from a, a front-end developer's perspective versus just a, a back-end engineer pushing around data. Hmm. And so what are you working on specifically, if you can talk about it? What are you what are you building on Urbit? Uh, it's called TomeDB, but it's just a kind of a JavaScript client package and and associated Urbit Gall agent that handles kind of the the data pushing subscriptions, um, and then also kind of adding data permissioning and kind of all the basic database stuff that you'd be looking for. It's kind of more, it's more of a, a NoSQL database right now. So the kind of there's no exact scheme of validation that's being done on the server side. I think that's something that, that could be introduced over time or a more standard SQL database can be also built, but maybe the more interesting part versus the back end is how that's used on the front end side. Um, so instead of using the typical JavaScript Urbit HTTP API, where you have to kind of think about what are my subscriptions, what are my pokes, what are my scries, um, it's pretty standard as far as a typical web two JavaScript client side package. So if I'm if I'm working with a key value store, it's one of the stores that TomeDB supports. I can just call set uh, to set a value, delete to delete a value, clear to wipe everything and kind of leaves the how this is implemented in like a separate separate context that most developers won't have to worry about, which I think is something they're going to be looking for long term mm -hmm. when building on Urbit. And because that's the whole draw of Urbit for programmers specifically is that once you get over the initial hump of learning Hoon, everything becomes much simpler. Maybe not, you know, it still can be simple and comp complex, but it's not so complicated basically. So that, but there, there is a sort of composability layer that is much, once you get into it, is much more elegant and uh, usable. Is that an accurate frame? Yeah. So I guess kind of the, maybe the main draw of Urbit is that everything is at the end of the day stored as a noun on your, on your ship or on whoever's hosting a data ship. So there's kind of, there's no real blockers to say that you can't access data versus if you're if you're sending messages over over Facebook or something that they kind of they have their own internal schema for storing things that's also not accessible but if you're working if you're developing a new application and you think that hey this this chat is interesting I'd like to do something else with it um that's all just purely accessible hmm. data that's on your ship that you could find a way to kind of convert into a schema that works for you and and build new experiences on top of that. So with Facebook or Twitter, there's a black box of in terms of how they make their decisions in terms of protocoling, but in Urbit, all of that stuff is already set uh, in a way that allows people to really build things with a lot more awareness over how the rules are are written, basically. Yeah, I think maybe the interesting thing about Urbit versus kind of a general client server architecture is that um you don't as when you're developing an application, you don't have to be thinking about kind of who are the other people that want to use this data and mm. how does that so you're not I guess you it kind of lets the permissionless side of it start happening where developers and applications that you didn't think about or know that would want to interface with your data can pop in and start and start working with it. Um, and there's also the kind of a like principal agent problem side of it where um, if Twitter or Facebook wants to host APIs for developers to work with, they're, they're upfront agreeing to cover the costs of all those API requests and, oh. and building on that. So you either force, they're either forced to charge applications directly to use that data which means that kind of 
those costs eventually make their way down to the user or how does it work on Urbit? Uh, I guess if you get to the point where users are hosting their own ships and they're kind of they they have a little bit of a, a cost there or there's a company that's hosting for them, then the your your server's kind of already running and it might be idle on the chance that no one's making requests to it. So there's kind of there's free space for mm. it to serve applications or it doesn't doesn't cost doesn't cost extra for one application's data to be accessible to others. There's no real there's no real drawback there versus if Twitter makes an API, they have to pay for developers to support it, pay for mm. um the servers for that and all the kind of resulting headaches that that come from that. And if they also want to make a, a quick change to their how they store things and they have to kind of deal with the the fallouts of how that would impact the the API that kind of serves out that data. Mm. What is so Uh, it's a, it's such a vastly new way of thinking about the internet that I'm having trouble uh, uh, thinking through. And also I'm limited in my experiences in terms of APIs and all the stuff in terms of Twitter and Facebook, how that actually works, how um, how like Facebook creates a new programming language or, or a new networking protocol. And then they need to essentially um, uh, create an API and also train a bunch of developers to use that API. And so there's just like this giant thing. And you're saying that Urbit basically doesn't have that part um, because it's all standardized at the OS level. Yeah, I guess kind of bringing, making it, is you're taking out all the layers in the middle that you'd have to to insert to kind of like keep security and keep oh. ne networking authentication in the, the old system versus almost it's i guess it's almost at the point where if urbit is like a, a database table then you have 10 different applications that are just storing data in the table so if you want to kind of do some sort of remixing on the data between those then that becomes like a, a database query on on your application on your server versus here i have to call 10 different apis and and uh, deal with the changes there and kind of how do you handle all the requests and that might also get expensive. So there's, I guess maybe a lot of these things would be technically possible on the old way, but if you introduce so much friction that it just would never work as far as a, a cost to benefit of combining that data, then the data just ends up locked and never used. And that's specifically because of security, because Facebook has databases that are stored in their various data stores uh, and that are massive out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and that in order to keep everybody's data secure, uh, they need to es establish a lot of friction so that the right people are getting the right permissions and everything. Yeah, that's definitely one way to look at it. Another is that they have so much data that they have to get kind of fancy with the way that they're storing it as far as sharding it between different clusters and and all sorts of complexity that you couldn't even, even if they wanted to give you the ability to just write a direct query on their database table, it would never pan out that way because there's there's so much that they've had to do to to implement a scale of supporting all that traffic versus on your on your personal server, it's you know it's just your data and that and you know it has a lot more leeway to support kind of queries and stuff that maybe aren't perfectly optimized, but it doesn't matter because you're kind of pay, you're kind of paying that cost anyway by having a personal server. So if you have extra compute to spare, then mm. you can use it without any repercussions versus kind of taking away from a big company's bottom line. Interesting. So it shifts the cost of the data store to the each individual person who gets on Urbit rather than having that all be on a centralized uh in underneath a centralized corporation that needs to pay for all these data things so it's almost like it's a because before facebook started at a time where you needed to build out your data centers in order to host all of the time all of the data that was starting to be created on facebook 
But then shortly after that, Dropbox, Dropbox never built their own data stores. They would just all uh, be in the cloud. And so now it's kind of like taking that initial era before Facebook of where you need to go create servers, but instead of the server being in a physical location, it's now in a, it's now in the cloud, but it's thought about and structured in a way that it establishes some of those, that some of that era, basically. Yeah. It's kind of a, a bringing the best back from the past and also going into the future of, of cloud computing, I guess. Uh, I think there's, there's some, interesting things that need to be thought about more as far as how do you get more people on orbit versus kind of the everyone has to pay for a planet everyone has to, to host their own server um but i think if you're not if you're not going through the process of actually serving content you just want to kind of consume content or applications that live on orbit then a lot of the traditional client servant stuff can be ported over and in that case the the server would be kind of someone else's orbit. So if you're in a if you're in a group or a, a DAO, then kind of the the group owner would be hosting all the messages and receiving everything, and um, that'll kind of trickle down to where they're they're paying the cost because they have a more kind of high value use case for running an orbit versus um, clients that just want to kind of browse things and aren't going to be able to to put up ten dollars a month or more to to run their own server and now that ten dollars a month thing is that essentially um based on like if i got if i have my planet is my amount of data that i can store on my own personal server on my planet is it limited in some way or can i build my own database center somewhere and then have a lot more storage um, I guess, yeah, it depends if you want to go the, the self-hosting route or the kind of hosted route. There's a couple of companies that are supporting that. Um, I think they do have, I guess there's a couple of things to, to note there. They, like the current companies do have caps on how much data you can host mm -hmm. on your orbit, but I'm assuming if you, if you pay more and they kind of develop the, the user requests over time, then that will that kind of limitation will be taken out, but you could also, you could also host yourself and kind of set up on whatever type of server instance and, and hard drive that would suit your, your specific needs. And then there are still kind of technical limitations to how much data that an Arabic can store. Mm. Um, I think that's kind of now in the range of, of four to eight gigabytes. And that is all, is all kind of held in Ram, which is a, a, maybe an archaic way of doing things, but there is work being done to including new Mars that'll kind of release those, those limitations and get a bit more on, on par with performance of traditional systems. Mm. So that's really interesting. Um, so you can't store much in your planets at the moment, even if you had your own personal server, you can only store about four to eight gigabytes of information. Yeah, I guess maybe you could kind of store things offsite and have a way of retrieving those onto mm -hmm. your onto your planet and then kind of removing those from the planet itself's memory, but that would be introducing a lot of the the complexity that that Herbert is trying to take out. So yes. yeah, but they're they're actively working on that to, in order to create larger data stores. Yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting things being worked on. I think there's there's a roadmap at roadmap.urbit.org that kind of goes into a lot of the things. I think one of them is demand paging. So how do we how do we kind of store things not in RAM but on disk if they're not being used and mm. dynamically retrieve those is is one of the potential optimizations. How long until we have video streaming on Urbit? Ah uh, that's a that's a difficult question. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that use case will be kind of necessary maybe in the, in the medium term, because this video streaming is kind of ephemeral in its use case. You just kind of watch something live and then it's done. You could also have it recorded, but there's this web RTC and stuff that 
that supports that al already by going directly over the browser. Um, but I think it'll be at least a, a few more years before kind of Urbit has the the bandwidth to to support that. I'm not too informed on the like the technical potential technical roadblocks that are that could come up there, but I know there's mm. smart people working on it. So. Mm. And so what is your take on where AI and Urbit um, mingle? Uh, I guess the kind of Urbit version of AI is a, a personal AI that acts specifically on your data. Um, so kind of how do you how do you have an AI that works for you instead of like for the interests of a big corporation or kind of to serve to serve ads or whatever I whatever the person that's putting up the expense of training that model wants to achieve from it versus if you're if you're hosting a server and you have kind of spare compute all the time and you can train your specific model for your use case that you can tell it ahead of time. Um, like here's the type of videos that I want to see, here's the type of content I want to see. And um, I guess kind of takes a lot of the the split between here I want to I want to see this data and so I guess kind of like using Twitter is I use Twitter because I want to see certain things on it. But um, in return, you're also fed a bunch of things that you don't want and you can't do anything about it. But you're forced to be it anyway because it also has the stuff that you want. Um, mm -hmm. So you can kind of be able to train your own system so that you get what you want out of using a computer without kind of what you don't want, which is, I guess, once once uh, software gets to that point, we'll probably um, have done most of the, the difficult work. Interesting. So you're saying it, and I've heard uh, that it is extremely expensive to train an LLM right now, that each query that OpenAI offers its, its um, users is hugely expensive and they're covering the cost through venture capital. Uh, and it's to set up an LLM is a huge, huge thing. But as with everything in technology and cloud computing, all these different things got cheaper and cheaper. AI will probably get cheaper. It'll probably become cheap enough to run your own LLM. And hopefully at that point, Urbit will have solved all of these hard challenges in the way of its highly ambitious goal. And they'll both kind of coincide at the right time in order to take, take out the centralized AI. Yeah, I think the maybe the centralized AI will still exist in some form, but it's kind of a if you want, I guess you you kind of have the the option of using your own, going your own way, and using your own system versus the only option is to use the the way that has been forced on you. Um, but I think I guess the maybe there's like the decentralized Optimus future that everyone will just kind of be really interested in security and really interested in all these things that this crypto and urban and all these different new technologies can provide. Um, but I think that I said a lot of people still aren't going to be interested in, in all that stuff, but just kind of getting to the point where here's an alternative and it's, you know, just as appealing to use as the current systems you're used to is kind of, what Urbit can solve for. And it, so it might never be a, like a mass adoption type of thing until there's a hardcore group of like 20% of the population who's like, I will never go back to that other thing because it offers little or a little bit of what I want, but a lot of things I don't want. And then for all of us who do kind of value sovereignty, value freedom, value uh, controlling our own data, Urbit is like a no brainer. But for most of the population, probably like 80% of the population, they don't really give a shit about, about any of this. Yeah, I think that's maybe one of my interesting ideas. I think that, I guess, the goal is that developing software on Urbit is so much better than using the pre-existing systems that it kind of subsumes normal software engineering, um, regardless of whether people are interested in the in the decentralization aspects of it and and other things, um, so that, I guess that's kind of my my idea of like what's the I guess Urbit by itself right now is like kind of 
the next generation of Linux as far as like a desktop operating system. But most people don't use Linux. Most people use kind of Mac OS. They use iPhone. They use these um, products that is kind of built on top of Linux in a way. Um, but it's been productized, been um, turned into something that most people really would want to use. And I think that kind of the success of Arabic will be kind of like the the Apple on steroids version of of the next kind of generation of software. I I think that I guess a lot of the current Urbit early adopters are like the the Linux user crowd that they're you know interested in that type of thing. But the I guess there's the you'd want everyone else to be interested in that too. But you kind of have to accept the way that that things actually work and kind of bring the technology and the use cases to that that point of mass adoption. And so where is the where is the gap between getting a whole bunch of really smart engineers who really love Urbit because it's easier for them to build things and the gap between that and getting my neighbor who barely ever uses a computer but goes on Facebook to check out their 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 friend's stuff. Where is the gap between that? Um, I guess a lot of it's cost. A lot of it's just developer tooling. Um, so I can but, go into those two a little bit more. But how does it, how, where, at what point do we switch from these really interested engineers to like people who don't give a shit about engineering and want just the superior experience that Urbit could potentially get, give, give? Um, I guess, yeah, it's still a bit early days for that. I'd maybe look at this Holium's realm if you've seen that. Um, it's kind of a reimagining of the a desktop experience that in many ways is already kind of superior to just directly using Linux or Windows or Mac. Um, Interesting. So I guess those products will kind of start to emerge, but they also, they currently have a problem because the underlying architecture itself is expensive. It's not like a a free and easy thing to set up as maybe you kind of have with AWS per user, it's more expensive. Um, so as Polyam is kind of forced to to charge per month for users for the application versus if you're thinking about other big type of similar software products that like Chrome are in, in the old space. I'm, I guess I'm thinking of like Notion and Figma as far mm -hmm. as like collaborative tools. Um, they have, you know, generous free tiers and they can support that more because their their cost per user is still low. And I think that it's the the goal for Urbit is if you if if everyone that's using your software already has a server, then the cost to you is zero, which is better right. than than even they can provide. Um, but that's kind of the the chicken and the egg problem that if no one has a server already, which most of them most users don't, so you're forced to to pay that yourself as far as like a, a loss leader for those products. And then eventually at some point, what needs to happen in order to get that future realized? Yeah, I guess a lot of it's just kind of keep grinding away, get the cost down. I think that there is, there's interesting work being done there as far as like kind of virtualizing Urbit. So how do you run an Urbit inside of an Urbit? Um, I think that can get <laughs> interesting because you have, you can have multiple servers that kind of share they they over they share the data that overlaps between them natively so that reduces cost and kind of you're not you're not forced to have your own server instance that's kind of running with two gigs of RAM all the time on the chance that you need it. You can have kind of one server that maybe has has more RAM, but it has five hundred different ships that run inside of it. Um, those are the kind of like beginning stages. Oh, interesting. I think like maybe it kind of has to get to the point of typical cloud computing where um, if you're not using your server, maybe it's not even up, um, but you can kind of spin one up for you as you need it and do more interesting stuff there to to save on costs. So in the traditional way, if you were doing cloud computing, like if I were setting up my own, you know, Facebook competitor, I would go use Kubernetes on AWS in order to do that, right? Yeah, that's that's accurate. 
And what is the relationship between that Kubernetes? What's your experience of Kubernetes versus your experience of doing the same thing on Urbit? Um, I mean, yeah, just the the end developer experience is, is a lot simpler because you're not kind of having to deal with dynamically spinning up things and all the the headaches that go with kind of scalable deployments because you kind of have the the compute and everything across people's accounts laid out for you ahead of time that you can just call. Um, Whereas in Kubernetes, what is it like? As Kubernetes, you, you have to kind of define the rules for what's my minimum size of, of servers and maximum and how do I scale those? And I, maybe that's not even the difficult aspect of it. It's just getting it to run in in AWS and security and stuff like that and handling all the requests is a lot more overhead versus from what I've worked with Urbit, most of the things like just work. Um, that's kind of the the goal of it. And why I think, Amazon, go for it. Sorry. Um, I guess I think kind of there is still a lot to learn from the typical way of doing of software engineering that kind of needs to be that knowledge and expertise is not is not wasted. Obviously, we've gotten we've gone a long way with uh, systems that we already have. So how do we bring that all that all that experience and knowledge to Urbit? Um, I think yeah, I guess kind of right now my point of view is that Urbit makes like the the hard problems easy, but it makes the easy problems hard uh, <laughs> at the beginning. Is, because eventually yeah, for now. Easy, easy problems will get solved. And so then it'll, the goal is that it will be make all of the hard problems easy and the easy problems easy. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's right on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why is AWS set up the way it is? Like, is that, again, is it because of the nature of scaling systems on cloud? Or is it because they just made a system that was bureaucratic so that they could have more softwares work on it and spend more money? Um, yeah, it's kind of a the nature of the beast of of deploying software nowadays. I, even like kind of one of the related examples is that like email as a protocol has kind yeah. of been captured by a couple companies because, and not not even in like a malicious way exactly. It's just um, there's so much spam floating around all the time that if your if your email was just exposed to it, it wouldn't be able to. To handle it basically and you wouldn't we wouldn't want to use email at all um so kind of gmail and a couple other companies have to i guess google would have to manage all that and kind of decide for you what counts as spam what doesn't and then uh-huh. you're forced to just kind of use their solution instead of raw servers which is what, what aws does for you also in more of like a, a general context but that's also a thing that that Urbit does for you is it it kind of verifies what requests are valid and and reject things and handle that that complexity um, for you in a different way. Got it. And so, like, what is the biggest app that has been scaled? Do you know how many users have like concurrently used one app? And and do we know whether Urbit say like a million people joined tomorrow would Urbit break? Um. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it definitely would. It's, Probably not a lot of concurrent users on applications. I know it's like radio has has been somewhat popular. There's chats and Talon's groups that have maybe a thousand to two thousand people that end up having issues because it, I guess kind of the way it works right now still is everything is synchronized from the host ship of the group. So all wow. your all your messages go to to one person's orbit, so you're kind of vertically limited by the amount of traffic that a single orbit can handle. I think there's there's different ways of addressing that versus um, I kind of communicating between different multiple ships or being able to kind of virtualize a, a single ship but access it on on multiple servers that handle like subsets of traffic is a way to do it. Um, so you're so and and all of that, like if one ship, if there's a thousand or two thousand people join, then basically there's the that one ship that's hosting it 
with with its four to eight gigabytes uh all in ram that is all for that being done on that ship and it basically breaks that ship yeah so i think right now if you kind of go beyond the limits of what it can handle it'll just kind of crash and maybe not even be able to to boot again um if unless you can kind of do as you can try to compress the memory but that can only be done so many times if everything's already if all the kind of messages oh. and stuff are in the right places in memory that like slotted in next to other, there's no empty spaces then there's not much more you can do at that point except maybe try to delete parts of it um huh. and so you can't even, you can't even turn it back on because all of the ships are permanent they're permanently running so they that instance of everybody all at once going there remains until you delete stuff yeah i think that's the case i'm not exactly sure um i guess you could you kind of do the the typical orbit thing of of breaching and kind of starting over but that forces you to lose all your all your memory and all your safe stuff which is um i guess there are plans in the future to have kind of backup services that keep another version of your data offsite um because you oh. definitely if you're if you're kind of driving on orbit and using it for most of your software needs you don't want to just hit a weird thing with your server and everything goes away that's kind of going back in the past versus traditional systems is kind of all your data is replicated and they can have servers go down and it doesn't kind of directly harm your experience as a user um so there's yeah. there's more thought that needs to be done there as far as bringing like a, a server architecture up to par with traditional systems. It's so interesting because, yeah, as you said, it's going back to the days, which I still remember in the 90s of of, uh, of just like word processing and you're writing this, you know, three page, four page essay for school and all of a sudden the power goes out and you lost it. You lost the whole thing. Um, and uh, and so it's bringing that back, which we don't nobody wants to bring back. Um, everybody wants their data to be available all the time. It also reminds me of when I explain it to people who are a little bit more skeptical of Urbit, they uh, uh, they say it's aspirational with a sort of a cheeky grin. Um, and uh, it is so aspirational. And I think I'm drawn to aspirational things like this. But I think it's I think that the right people are interested in these problems. So they're, they're going to get solved. Yeah, it's definitely as far as like kind of fully replacing existing software, that's a a you know, tail to be seen if that will ever happen. It's definitely still a long time away. But I think kind of the the new narrative that this urban has kind of picked up recently is the just kind of crypto execution environment for all your applications. So that's something where the like user experience oh. of existing stuff is still kind of bad relative to to what it should be. And there's more there's more general acceptance of I have to to pay to use this application or um the kind of the users are are a lot more tolerant of that stuff and they're also potentially higher values. So I think that's something that that Urbic can can capture a lot in the short term and kind of I guess like basic things that would be really complicated um in the old way of doing things like adding payments like directly to to your chat in crypto. That's something that is being done um by Ukbar, and I think that that I think it already exists with one of their applications. But if it doesn't, then I know it's coming mm. at least in a few months. So you're saying that uh, Urbit is sort of getting adoption from crypto people because Web two is currently solving those needs, but it's done in really shitty ways that Urbit can do better. Yeah, I guess you kind of have to to use like the the MetaMask and Uniswap and the the centralized systems that are also like mm -hmm. MetaMask and, and your swap with both kind of like really terms of service changes that basically say that they can track everything you're doing and <laughs> report that stuff on. So, um, and so, yeah, are, so people, are people actually moving over to Urbit for this? Um, I said, don't think so quite yet because I guess a lot of the infrastructure stuff and kind of how do you how do you take a pre-existing application that's just you know a typical JavaScript web, web application? How do you uh, run it on Urbit? That's there's still a lot of friction there because 
just going back to what we were talking about earlier with the uh, TomeDB, you still have to write your own custom backend as a Gaul agent in Hoon, uh, uh, which most of like the Web3 developers, you know, don't have the experience to do and probably aren't going to take that that time to figure out. So uh, that's one of the things that I'm I'm really trying to push for is how do you how do you kind of use Urbit as just like a really simple it's like trying to get a really simple use case that that um Urbit can serve to start driving user adoption. So for me that's just how do you how do you store data and then transfer between different people in a secure way. Um which I think this Urbit can kind of do already. We'll be able to start doing better, but then how do you get to the point where, you know, you can kind of query against it like you could a traditional application? So I think it's one of the architectures that I'm interested in exploring more is uh, just kind of storing raw data on Urbit, and then that gets replicated to like a local SQLite database. Um, uh, this is something that I was tipped yes. off to by the the guys at Holium. They're doing something like that with their chat database. Um, and that's kind of, as the kind of joke is, although everyone's rewriting a chat app because uh, <laughs> they've been rewriting, um, Ukbar's been rewriting and then Talon already has theirs, but that was kind of what theirs does that like talk or Talon's application doesn't is, um, because, it, because you have a place to store data locally, that's kind of supports all those queries and stuff as you, you can search for old messages, you can kind of it, it gets you to the point of user experience where this is what I expect of an application versus um the open talk it kind of it's forced to talk to your your urbit ship directly and make a request for all old messages which can take you know 10 to 15 seconds and you're just kind of sitting there waiting for it to load um, <laughs> yeah. yeah I think your intuition is right I think that the being able to query data and transfer data uh, uh, in a way that can be offloaded to some of these other systems seems like it's probably a good a good first use case. Yeah, so it's even they and with their application have had to kind of build their own specific backend and how do we handle kind of updates for messages and how do we make sure that you know every time you boot an application, you only download from your server kind of like new messages versus going back and retrieving everything old. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a lot of, this is a lot of like infrastructure level decisions that an application developer shouldn't have to be battling every time they want to build something. So mm -hmm. as if we or the Therapy Foundation or the community can like kind of start building out those solutions more as far as um, nice Urbit's kind of like an infrastructure for building infrastructure, <laughs> kind of like AWS. It is, it's it's pretty comparable to AWS in that way. Um, I think that's kind of its competitor in many ways. But Interesting. So kind of it's at, concurrently with the infrastructure for infrastructure, there has to be like the, the, the normal infrastructure that we're used to with, as far as databases and um, networking and Mm. It's mostly databases is what I see because Urbit's kind of mostly a, a backend technology. So huh. how do we how do we store data and make it queryable? And then kind of the rest is pretty much already served by JavaScript applications. I think maybe Urbit can get to the point where it's who native UI and the more uh -huh. different ways of, of doing UI can be viable, but JavaScript kind of has the the weight behind it. So, mm. um, so the last five or ten minutes, let's talk about uh, some of what you learned at the Volcano Summit in in El Salvador. Uh, well, first, I want to ask you: Did you successfully use any crypto to pay for anything in El Salvador? <laughs> um, I yeah, I still haven't tried to do that. I've definitely watched people try to do that, and I think it was still kind of a oh, um, you know, maybe. Maybe we'll take this. At least they have kind of like Bitcoin ATMs that I saw work, but I think it's a lot of it's still just kind of top down, kind of being yeah. trying to be pushed by the the president versus most people just kind of like want cash, <laughs> want the US dollar. Um, 
so like you you didn't you didn't see anybody trying to that actually successfully made a bitcoin transaction during the summit no i don't think so yeah um what was the what were some of the things that were highlighted at that what did you what did you learn um i guess mostly that that urbit's in good hands i think mm. it kind of like Ted's recent restructuring of the the foundation and getting all the roadmaps set out and their work that's been done to kind of increase deployment speeds and I think they have a lot of I think they have a lot of good momentum going behind them as far as like at least when I was learning about Orbit starting out I was like oh you know this could be interesting but we don't have X we don't have Y we don't have all these like little things that need to be done and a lot of those are like on the roadmap of, oh, it's like, you know, people are showing that they've already built most of it and the rest of it's coming, you know, this year, in the next few months. So I think they'll start to be, I guess the, the infrastructure level of building on Urbit is going to start to be like a lot more solid and just you can kind of like trust it for, for most things and get to building the applications that hope people are actually going to want to use. And were all the talks recorded? If there's one talk that was recorded um, that you would really suggest everybody watch, what what would it be? Um, I don't think they were recorded, but I think it's Logan's talk on Zorp, which is like a ZK rollup that uses uh, Knock, which is like, which is Urbit's assembly language. That was definitely really interesting. I think Logan was really good at kind of explaining really complicated things in a way that that makes sense so that you can tell that he has a really fundamental understanding of what he's building. Um, is there a way uh, did can I ask what Logan's last name was so I can find him or uh, do you have his ship I can get afterwards afterwards? Um, I think I, I could find it. I don't have it on hand or in memory. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. How can people find out more about what you're working on and and uh, and connect with you? Um, yeah, I guess we'll just say you'd find me on on Twitter at AJ Lamarck. Um, there's a couple, because I have a blog that I posted a couple of things, mostly about Urbit, um, mostly just kind of if you're new to the space or interested in things. I kind of have linked a lot of the a lot of the stuff that I read starting out that interested me. So I'd kind of recommend you to to look into those as well. Uh, and um, yeah, I guess also would just kind of keep an eye on on what on what Holium is releasing because I'll be kind of like working with them to kind of build out a lot more of the film upper experience for it that maybe doesn't require learning the whole traditional Urbit stack of school app school and all the the complexity there just kind of meant to be targeted towards existing javascript developers so nice awesome thank you so much for coming on the show thank you thank you for listening and i hope you enjoyed this episode as always you can find me on twitter at stuart alsop iii also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.